Is the point of the 30 seconds to summarize or introduce the topic as a whole, or is it just that we start and then... The I could just kill Will. Ladies and gentlemen, we got it. Will! Who are you? You know who and, I am. That's true. And why is Mark going to kill you? This is Will Benars. It's Bednars. Bednars. Known him for this long. Bednars? Bednars, yeah. You say put the accent on the bed and then the nurse? Yeah. This is a great time to learn that. Hi, Will. <laughs> uh, Will, you, you hail from a magical land called Wall Street. Well, first from a magical land called... San Francisco. Yeah, both are magical. <laughs> Speaking to the mic. Well, you have to ask me a question. I okay. <laughs> if you're from that's Wall, a command. Command. if you're from Wall yeah. Street, what are you doing here? If I'm from Wall Street. What am I doing here? Well, I quit hmm. my job. Um, I was an investment banker for a year, so not too long, but enough for me to realize that it was just a very perverse um, environment and situation. And so, you know, this coincided with me converting to Catholicism. What are the chances? Yeah. Which came first, the the desire to become Catholic or the desire to not be an investment banker? Well, the desire to be Catholic, obviously. Gotcha. Yeah. And then the desire not to be an investment banker followed. Um, I mean, in, being an investment banker, it's kind of a glorious situation. You make a lot of money, mm-hmm. have a lot of power, people respect you. Um, That's why I podcast. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, um, and so, yeah, and I was reading new polity while I was an investment banker, believe it or not, and was just fascinated with what you guys were doing and then just reached out and, and got hired. And I live with Jacob now, as you know, <laughs> not gay. Um, <laughs> um, and, and yeah, that's why I'm here. Well, I, I think it's an important to- topic that we're talking about today. It's on the stock market, particularly for those of you who don't know what an investment banker is and how it pertains to the world of publicly traded companies. Could you give us a quick breakdown on that? Uh, sure. Um, I mean, as an investment banker, you're essentially a middleman um, directing transactions between parties. And I worked for a private investment bank, so we only did M&A transactions. So, when so you're like a professional shopper, in other words. You go no. into Nordstrom or Macy's, and somebody helps you. Like no, like a retailer, because the yeah. shopper's the one who actually okay, purchases. Okay, there you right? go. Yeah. Um, but I make we make the sales, right? Yeah. Um, so you can do a lot of you know different transactions, like raising debt for a company or going public, like IPO, which we'll talk about today. Um, but we, my bank, only focused on when a bigger company was going to purchase a smaller company mm-hmm. to grow their business. Um, and particularly a public company buying a private company. Um, yeah, for the most part, but mm-hmm. sometimes you would you would have two private companies working together. Um, but yeah, typically that's how it works because you need a lot of money and cash to be able to purchase another company. So typically that comes through uh, mm-hmm. by being public, publicly traded. Yeah. So so we want to talk about the stock market today. Yeah. I I think that one day a pope will condemn the stock market. Yeah. Um, Four years and counting. <laughs> There'll be an encyclical. It'll be either from Pope Francis or Pope Francis will have just died, and the first encyclical of the next pope will come out. And in it, it will, it'll, it'll be called, in Latin, of course, the first <laughs> two words will be like... Contra negotiatium. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief. That'll be, the title of the, uh, <clears throat> that'll be the title of the encyclical. And then it will go on to say, 
uh, the stock market is no good. <laughs> Do you know what the stock market is in Latin? No. Do you? No, I don't. Can yeah. we make it up? We can make it up, sure. I don't know what a stock would be. Share there Because one of the things that we know from the Middle Ages is that there was no difference between a partner and a shareholder. Yeah. Edwin Hunt was a dude who wrote about this. He So during... We've, in our last podcast, we talked about investing. We yeah. talked about the societas. Um, St. Thomas explicitly references this in his Summa. Let's not presume that everyone's watching it. Yeah. Uh, okay. What is a societas? Yeah, societas is a word in Latin that means something like a community engaged in a joint activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was used to describe a husband and a wife, uh, their marriage. And in particularly the marital act as well, in, in some cases, that was a euphemism that was used. Um, but when it was also a technical term to describe a certain type of partnership between an investor and a merchant. The investor giving the money to a merchant to go down to Portugal to buy wine, to bring it back. And uh, we're taught by a number of historians that says that, who say that the investor was never or very seldom a sleeping partner. He was really activated and engaged, invested spiritually in the endeavor because what they're bringing back was something that yeah. the community needed. And, and the reason that we, we want to start with talking about the societas is mm-hmm. I think a lot of the times when you hear a critique of a modern institution, it's very difficult because it's all we know, right? It's, our presumption is that there's always been a stock market. We were born into a stock market. It doesn't really seem like something one like invents and then does. It seems like something that's always been around, or at least the capacity for it was always around. Mm-hmm. When you point to the societas, what we're pointing to is that within Christendom, so that is to say within a world in which Christianity was considered to be true mm-hmm. by a whole bunch of people, <laughs> uh, within this world, there was a way of doing investment. And there was a way of, of being a merchant, even. Mm-hmm. Um, but that it didn't ever occur within this world to do it the way we do it now, uh, which is to say through a stock market, a secondary market. So it's just important to say, like, you know, we come from somewhere. We have a history. We are a post-Christian people. So part of what we want to do in, in Good Money generally is look at what did a Christian people do, mm-hmm. acknowledging that that doesn't mean they're without sin, that doesn't mean they're perfect, that doesn't mean they're smart. It just means they're more perfect, less sin, smarter. Uh, <laughs> right? But, but acknowledging that, right, then we want to focus in on what they had to be able to show the change. I think that's important because sometimes the way people talk, they just they speak in this, like, ahistorical vacuum. Like, mm-hmm. is it good to have a stock market or not? And it's like, well, what went before? And that's what we're trying. I just want to – I'm playing the dummy on this one because I am. <laughs> Well, that is what came before, and there's this, you know, slow transition to what we came to now, and we won't track the whole thing, but... But there it, was was the case, it was the case that the societas was limited in time, right? Yeah, so it's, it had a definite goal in mind. It right. was bring back wine. Yep. That's the goal, you know? For, and this... and if, I, if you had gotten the wine, you'd sold the wine, your societas had done it, and I came up to you and said, hey, I'd like to invest in your societas, you'd be like, what societas? Yeah, because it's already done. Correct? Yeah, okay. it just it's just described our decision together to do something. You yeah. know, now right after Saint Thomas died um, in the in the very late thirteenth century, there was a development in the way that investments happened, and that was the invention of a company. But again, a company that we wouldn't recognize today. 
they were, it, these companies were, again, decisions that people would make to bind together for particular uh, ventures, for particular ends, particular goals. But they just continually did business together right. for a very long time. And what you, whatever amount that you put in to the business, into that particular endeavor, was you got a prorated share out of it based upon both your your capital input and your labor mm -hmm. input. Mm -hmm. As far as uh, like Edwin Hunt uh, is concerned, is, uh, who did a major study on the Peruzzi company, um, the development one of the earliest companies in in this new development, uh, he couldn't tell a difference between or he he thought that everybody as far as he could track down actually worked. All the investors were actually workers in the company. Mm -hmm. And I think and, he also said that they, despite, you're right, this mm -hmm. difference in that it wasn't one single merchant voyage that was being funded, they mm -hmm. still had a limited scope. They would do things together, but he said between two and 12 years was the lifespan, I think, of these. And I don't think that was set in law. I think sure. that was just kind of what inevitably happened? like how the relationships went. It's like sometimes they lasted a couple of years and sometimes they lasted 12 years. But the, the development that we're talking about from the societas to the company, to this medieval company, mm -hmm. was that there was just a, an agreement that you were going to work together as societas after societas after societas for a number of years, for an, a longer period of time. Um, but the biggest thing to recognize in this is that there's no difference between a partner and a shareholder. This is the way that he and others have summarized um, the the company is that if you, whoa, dude, come on, Doing this. <laughs> not used to you here. <laughs> Sorry for those on the podcast. I just keep on elbowing our guest's microphone. <laughs> not very cordial. <laughs> Carry on. So the development that you know we see in the in the stock market and really the development into the stock market is where there is a separation. Somebody can own a part of a company when as a legal entity so whereas the societas clearly referred to people working together in mm -hmm. us mm -hmm. a company in the modern term of that word not the medieval mm -hmm. use of the term but the mm -hmm. modern term describes an it it describes a legal entity it's yeah. an us versus an it and you can own a part of it in it just like you can own any other it like i own this chair i own this table i own this microphone whatever it is but we don't always recognize what that it truly is, not juridically and legally, but actually yeah. and metaphysically. Yeah, so so you go from the societas where all the members know that they're doing one thing together, and then, mm -hmm. you, and then you go to the company right, in which you're doing several things together over a period of time, mm -hmm. uh, but still everyone's working, involved. Mm -hmm. And then you get and this... You, and even like putting in money to accomplish each venture. As well, so yeah. you first got wine, like now you but, only, but only the workers are putting in money. That's right. There's no tractor sitting back. Yep, that's right. Uh, yeah, or, or stones, stones right. sitting yeah. back. Yeah. So there's no just people. That, what I think you're both saying is that there's no people who are in it just for the money without labor. Right. There's no kind of ownership that's simply legal and juridical. It's always the kind of ownership that comes with the fact that you are involved. You're yeah, working. in these early stages. Yeah. So give an analogy for the folks back home. It's like in the societas, you had a marriage. In the company, the medieval company, you had multiple wives, but not at the same time. <laughs> Just after the death of each wife, you got remarried. All licit, all well within the tradition. But then this third thing comes along, starts to break that commandment. You know, uh, I'm thinking of the Deuteronomical, of course. You cannot amass wives for yourself. Where the, the real first example of this 
as I understand it, is the East India Trading Company. Oh, I thought you were going to say yeah. the Pharisees. The British. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 1602, the British East India. British, British East India, or is yeah. it the Dutch? I, I think, think it's, it's the, the Dutch. Is it? Yeah, we, we wrote about this Dutch. at one point, but it's, it's, the, it's du- the Dutch. It's the Dutch. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It has to be because it's this is obviously reeks of Protestantism. Yeah. I guess the Brits would have been yeah. <laughs> 1602. <laughs> so a new, a new uh, company arises within this this field of people doing essentially what we would look at and say, yeah, that, that's an illicit way to do business. That all makes sense. Obviously prone to corruption, prone to sin in various ways, but not like something that implicitly makes you shudder and say something's unnatural here. But then East India Trading Company, which I associate largely with the Pirates of the Caribbean mm-hmm. as like the bad mm-hmm. guys. Yep. Not the pirates, to be clear. No, no, no. They're the good guys. guys yeah. Uh, they come on the scene, and they do what different? How do they? How do they end the medieval era for finance? Well, there is a number of things that the company that they were forming, they wanted to actually have a longer life, something that was going to be stable and always dependable. And the way that they were doing that is by amassing the profits of each venture. For the com- to reinvest in the company okay. itself. And they're saying, whoa, this is going to take me forever to get any profits out oh, so of my investment. So investors are not seeing the return on the investment in the profits each time the wine goes to market. Rather, the company is taking the profits they make and it goes back to the company, which presumably was like because the new world has been discovered, right, at this point, or they're yeah. bigger bigger uh, journeys or, the, or, or an old world on the yeah. other side yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. exactly okay. and so there was a 10 year period 10 years that you had to wait before you were going to get your first dividend okay well dang that's a long time what if I want the money now and so uh-huh. people started to trade their share in the company with other people so it's the development of the first secondary market uh, post Christianity you know so things like this you know, okay, so at one I, point, I give East India Trading Company my money. Mm-hmm. They go get spices, etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they don't give me a share in the profit of the sale of those things. I have to wait 10 years before I'm going to see anything back. Yep. I'm thinking, hey, I got to send my kids to 1602 college right now. So <laughs> I sell my share to Will for yep. a profit, though, right? That's right. I have to. Let's sell. say you had 10 units and you sell it to me for 12 units. I sell it for 12 units because I'm trying to make money here. Yeah. Not lose it. Yeah. Okay. And this is new because I think I recall in our research in the Societas, it, you could sell your position in a Societas, so that original format. Mm-hmm. But what it meant was that you then began the work. So you're quite literally joining the society. So, for instance, you send me off to Portugal, okay, but then something comes up where you can't wait around for me to get back to Portugal. Sell it to another guy. No, this never happened. I was trying oh, okay. to give this to you as an example, oh, trying okay. to describe how it worked. Yeah, okay. sorry for that confusion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, this is this is an occasion where uh, it's called a secondary market because your money never actually goes to the company that you're investing in. Right. Okay, so it's not like um, you know the Mona Lisa boat is needs to head off to to India to grab those spices, and some guy wants to pull out his money. It's not like they send a pigeon over to get his shekels uh-huh. and bring them back, and you send a different pigeon over uh-huh. to return those shekels. No, it's just I'm buying Will's ownership spot right. from him. And it happened really quick, 6% increase on, on the initial share price. And so people were starting to speculate on the ownership of the share prices 
so, because they were already making a quicker profit than what they would later get 10 years down the line. Now, pe the East India Company realized that 10 years wasn't going to work, and there's a whole history that develops there. But it is the emergence of the secondary market as a standardized um, mode of selling ownership in a company. And that develops and develops and develops into what we have today. But, you know, we could keep tracking the, those, those developments, those historical developments, but the really important principles, the actual conceptual changes happened at that moment. Yeah. The us turns into an it. Yeah. You know, the ownership stops being metaphysical, stops being relational, and it starts being legal. Has no basis in labor. Yeah. But I think people will ask, why would I pay him 12 units for a share that's worth 10 units? It's really a time preference of money, I think, is, right. is what the is, difference. What does that you want to answer that? You got it. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the concept is is that money, well, it's kind of this advent of, of an opportunity cost where you okay. always have a an applicable use of money, a way to spend it or invest it to make more money off of it. So right. I'd rather have $10 now than $10 a year from now because I can turn that $10 into mm -hmm. $15 in that time, right? Yeah. So that's, that's, the, that's the concept of time value of money. And, and is it the case that precisely because you could share because you could sell your shares you could also presume that the price of the share would go up for you as well so what i mean to say are you just saying because it seems like a basic truism to simply say like well i'll sell this um now to because i have some other idea of how to use the money to make more money mm -hmm. so it has an opportunity cost but it it seems to my mind that it would be more logical to say hey if this just went up 6%, um, I'm going to buy it from this guy because I've still got 10 years for this thing to grow, so I can sell it to the next guy for more. Like, the money itself appears to be right. um, increasing. Or, sorry, the, the shares themselves seem to be increasing in value over time. Oh, yeah, they are. and But that's <clears throat> just due to pure speculation right. and the ability to resell it. Right. And I guess the buyer ultimately thinks that that profit that comes to them ultimately will be more than what the share was originally worth. Totally. I mean, all I'm saying is you wouldn't buy it for yourself unless you thought it would go up for yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. Everyone's still trying to buy low and sell high. But it's in, it's an interesting phenomenon, and this is how we'll get into it later, how the stock market works, is that, you know, just it, it really does go up because there is that desire of other people to purchase it from you. Totally. It's all just the demand of the stock or the I share. Think it's why I think what really freaked me out about the whole thing is, like, how is this any different than an NFT? Like what I mean right. is, functionally speaking, as long as someone will buy it, it has value. Exactly. Like its value is the fact that the other person's going to buy it. Right. For me, that yeah. sent the like uh, alarm bell, and, and you know maybe I'm just like a, what's the word, uh, scrupulous or something, but it immediately became worrisome to me to invest in stocks if I'm entering into a system where the value of the thing most fundamentally is just related to how much I can pawn it on another person for. Right. Like, that's what's producing it. It's like, well, wh why not just make this thing an imaginary JPEG, which is what NFP NFTs did. Right? I mean, there it is rooted in somewhat of reality, though, because you are receiving dividends um, that aren't yeah. pertaining to profit well, let's, necessarily. Let's talk a little okay. bit about that, because I think we're going to um, inevitably get to all of my um, very emotional responses to the stock market. 
It's like it. It's like the stock market personally did me some in, in, injury, but that's not true. I just found out about it a year ago. I mean, it ruined the world, I suppose. But yeah, that's whatever. Lots of things do that. Um, I think it's worth pointing out, right? Since we're still in the kind of historical phase of this mm-hmm. argument, it's like one of the things I've heard many people say is that you know you still have. Well, let me back up once more. Profit sharing. This is what characterized the societas, right? At the end of the day, you mm-hmm. sell the wine at the market, and then there's some division arbitrarily decided between the stans and the tractor, where maybe it's not arbitrary. Maybe it's going it was to law. set. Yeah, it was yeah. set in law at that time. Oh, okay. We can chat about that. A so it's time. Set, set in law, but you, d- you divide the profits. Mm-hmm. All right. And this is basically yeah. the presumption which Catholic social teaching has had from the very beginning that mm-hmm. to those who work shall go the profits. <laughs> and so since everyone's working in some sense or another, the profits are being shared. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what's what's important about this is that it's it shows the kind of personal nature of the societas, which right. is that you don't simply share in the profits, you also share in the potential loss, right? That's absolutely right, yeah. And with the Dutch East India Trading Company, with the birth, the advent of the uh, secondary market, you had at least in perception, and to a large part true, the ability to uh, only share in profit in the sense of a kind of guaranteed gain, right? Because if I give my money to the trading company, it doesn't at first really matter if they fold or not if I'm making my money on the basis of selling it to someone else, mm-hmm. right? So I have, a, for an individual, it's not risk-free, but a much less risky investment. Yeah, you got it now out. Right, because I can sell it to the other guy. And I might know, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, it's going to fold. He's never going to see his money, right? But what do I care? I'm going to make the money on him, not on the company. Yeah. So you have this this change, right? And you also have this introduction of the, I think, I would call it the dividend proper. Uh, Because sometimes we say dividend and we just mean a share in the profits. But at least at this point in history, it changed a little bit. Well, actually a lot. Because instead of it being a dividend, being a share of the profits, where the thing is sold, the work is done, and the profits are divided between the workers, the dividend uh, that you got for owning the stock was sort of arbitrarily decided by the company. So the company says, okay, and this is true, I think, stop me if I'm wrong, I think it's still true today. So the company decides, the executives, I presume, of the company decide, okay, we're going to give all our shareholders this much. Yeah. Okay. Per share, it's per share. But what? Why this much and not that much? There's no. There's no reason, as far as I understand. Yeah. Then, it's not like we're looking at profits and we got to give everyone. There's ten people, so each person gets ten percent. It's nothing like that. They're just deciding how much they can afford to offer to keep shareholders happy, to keep right. them investing, to keep the value of the stock up. But to be fair, I mean, it vaguely tracks their profitability. So if they have a really profitable year, they'll say, okay, our dividends are going to go up from a dollar per share to a dollar and twenty-five cents per share. So, but it's not proportional, right, which right, is right. your point. Yeah, yeah. So tracking in the sense of, yeah, if they're doing more successfully, they can reward people right. with with bigger dividends. But you know, there's a reason why dividends are sort of, as I understand it. L- they're not like a big gain. Like even if a company does well, you're gonna maybe a little more, but not like a lot more. Because they're not wouldn't have to be uh, decided on and elected the next year. Right. You know, it's um, I mean, in a real sense, because the dividends are dis- are decided upon prior to the engagement of this next you know financial year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then it is something that that does not 
essentially connect to profits. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And and oftentimes they're paid out of savings. Right. Yeah. And another point, um, which is interesting, is that they'll every comp or most companies will give the option to reinvest dividends. And so mm -hmm. that's just another way to arbitrarily or artificially inflate share prices because that extra cash will just go into the share price. But let's back up from all this. Woo! That was, <laughs> well, just, I mean, I thought it was funny because the Dutch East India Trading Company is giving dividends in kind. They're giving actual, like, shipments of uh, spices, yeah. like cinnamon or something. Because they didn't want to part with the cash. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Those early years, yeah. But but I, what I want to be clear before we move on is the way in which this new thing, this secondary market, is parasitic upon the old thing. Mm -hmm. Because you have a form of life, a form of investing, a form of doing, um, being a merchant. That had been accepted as part of the tradition. It had its, you know, people understood it. So that when you introduce this new thing, it's not simply like blasting out the societas out of the water. Rather, it's very subtly, like almost like taking the center out of the societas, but keeping the exterior so that the transition can be made. What I mean is, you, dividends feel like sharing in the profits, right? Like the ability to take my share and trade it for cash feels like the end of a venture. It feels like a, a risk that's rewarded, but it's not, right? A, a company feels like a particular work, but it's not. I mean, th this is the point: is that the East India Trading Company could actually be doing anything out there, <laughs> and not, and, and you don't need to know. It's not like you're getting around saying, "Well, what should we do? Let's do this." Okay, they're gonna go do it. We're gonna get the wine. Here's the wine. We sell it. It's like we're going to give our money to these guys, and gee, sure hope they're not starting wars out there. Or the ship could have sunk by now. Well, right, we're exactly. We're still trading the stock. But we're all trading the stock, right? There, <laughs> there could be no company, which right. is, I think, where a lot of this stock market is now, is that exactly. we're all just trading fake. Like, there's no so real value being produced. That's what an NFT is. Yeah. But, like, historically speaking, unless Pirates of the Caribbean got it really wrong, they were starting wars. <laughs> So anyways. You know, that's a pretty good source. There's a lot of other really <laughs> thick history books we could mention and cite, but I think that's you know, good this, enough. This is how I feel. If it's like, okay, well, if they went through all the effort to make this big budget movie, I'm sure they checked their facts. Right. I'm not about to fact check yeah, yeah. Johnny Depp and company. That's hilarious. Okay, but it's a different relationship. But all I want to point out is that like so many things in the transition from Christendom to modernity, right? It's not just like the Protestants come and hack everything. Well, they do that sometimes. But it's not just this immediate shift. It's that things that feel like the old ways um, are put in place. And I think this is really hard because even today when people defend the stock market, they talk about things that no longer exist. They say things like, well, I own stock, and that gives me ownership in the company, and, and don't we all want to be owners and so have an influence on companies and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, bro, you don't own anything and you have no influence at all. But it feels like it. It, it rides on... And, and this is simply to say something good about humanity. We're not so wicked that you can just yeah. do a completely unreal uh, um, system of, of gaining. Well, let's... Uh, yeah, I really want to get into that and slowly so people can understand. But I think, I think the only reason why the system of the stock market works is because humanity is, is good. You know, because there's so, a lot of yeah. people of goodwill. We we struggle with totally abstracting ourselves from reality. That is true. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and so there is some, we'll get into some of the problems 
of the of the mechanisms of the stock market here. Um, but I but just kind of starting basic I'm pumped. this. I'm all right. excited. So let's do it. I want to go fast, but okay, you're right. Let's, let's do slow. it. Okay. So first of all, we talk, we've already mentioned this word speculation. Speculation is a technical term. It means buying something with the hope and the anticipation that its value in the market will rise. There is no desire to use the thing that you are buying. There is no desire to work with it. There's no desire to develop it in any way. It is purely a decision of, to purchase based upon an idea or a real insight that its value will increase in the future. So okay. is that allowed? Can we do that? No, you can't do that, dude. Really? Come on. Here comes the softball. <laughs> can we speculate? Uh, we can't speculate. Not you on know. the basis of that definition. No, you know what? And I don't have all these citations out. You can bring it up on the economic database, but we'll just have Josiah throw it up on the screen, all the citations. <laughs> do, 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 do. There it is. Of what? On speculation? On yeah, speculation. Yeah. But, we've, we but see- I think it's important, though, to mm-hmm. right, right away, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a misunderstanding of the term that is just part of the you know, uh, there's equivocal uses of language. And usually when we use speculation in English, we tend to mean something that really doesn't apply here, which is we tend to talk about risk. So I speculate that something's going to be really valuable. And this means that it's risky because it might not turn out to be valuable. And then the assertion has been made that that's what makes speculation wrong as if buying low, doing no labor to something, and selling it high is only a problem insofar as it's somehow risky behavior akin to gambling or to just imprudence. But right. what you're arguing, and I think is borne out in the Christian tradition, is that, yeah, there's a critique of imprudence, there's a critique of gambling within the Christian tradition, but it's simply not the same thing as speculation, that these are two distinct phenomena, both mm-hmm. bad in their own way, but mm-hmm. speculation isn't bad because... You're doing it with your life savings or whatever, as opposed to five bucks. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's a g- great point. I think the there's actually a historical reason why we have that equivocation in the term. Yeah. Um, speculation has always been a bad term. Nobody has ever liked it. Mm. It's like saying like prostitution or something mm-hmm. like that. Maybe even I'm not sure if people like prostitution these days or that word, but it's you, you have to constantly change the definition of what that word refers to so as to make us feel okay with what we're doing. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. so... Should I just read the, the quote from the catechism? Do it. Of what it is? Sure. Okay. Wait, which quote is this? From uh, 2409. No, that's not the right definition. Because that the ter- that's a, um, in the Latin, it's not speculation. Oh, so it's... Okay. Yeah, so that's not, not the right term. Um, no, in, in, um, uh, in the Latin, it's just a business decision. And that's why it needs to be changed later on. Uh, I think the closest, um, we're really looking for the idea. But w- anyways, let's just jump back to the prior speculation was considered bad because it was just people buying low, selling high with the intention of doing no work to it. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't cool. That means that you're increasing your power, how much money you have without any corresponding gift to society. Mm-hmm. So you're getting without giving. Mm-hmm. And that's just not cool, bro. You know, So that was why people didn't like it. Sure. But then a lot of people started to speculate. The stock market was kind of opened up for more people to enter into it. There's quite a number of reasons why to do that. Retirement accounts is really probably the biggest reason why, that's, uh, why the expansion occurred. 
And so we kind of had to change the definition of it. If we were all engaging in prostitution, you know, sure, sure, a sure. bad word, then then we have to change the definition of what work, it means. baby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just logging in to do some work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think you actually track this through, especially the last two or 300 years, um, how as speculation as an activity moves down from class to class, mm-hmm. it becomes um, licit, more and more licit. So what I mean is, when it was an activity of of the wealthy, like the kind of barons of the world, then you had people that are still middle class and even upper class critiquing it as being undignified and horrible. So you think about Charles Dickens, for instance. Charles Dickens thought share ownership was, was perverse and was used to oppress everyone beneath those who were trading in shares. Um, but then you have that opening up so that now the middle class itself no, is no longer watching the wealthy speculate. Speculate mm-hmm. Now the middle class is engaged in speculation and, you know, in a typical middle class way, which is that the middle class isn't there engaging in speculation to sort of try and control the world, to increase their power. They're doing it out of that kind of middling desire for security. So it's the 401k, it's retirement, it's that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then it becomes increasingly valued because the middle class especially in america is simply a sign of what's normal and when you live in a society that's detached from its conscience then you simply look around to see what most people are doing and if they're doing it it's probably moral so the moment that the middle class is doing it just in america de facto it's fine Mm -hmm. and now you're seeing even a further development right where now there's like a moral imperative to invest and that's moving down from the middle class to the lower classes because now it's being construed as well if it's all open to us if we can all invest on our phones now the lower class should have some piece of the pie, right? So now it's being, it's, it's precisely, you can see it becoming a, a wicked thing that very few people are doing to a normal thing that most people are doing, now to an actually morally good thing where it's like if you're not investing, you're losing out. If you don't invest, you're an idiot. If you're not like getting in on Bitcoin now, you're <laughs> never going to be wealthy later. That sort of thing. It's part of the like, does that make sense? I, I just wanted to give like a class history of why. <laughs> yeah, that totally does. <laughs> how this happens. Yeah. And so it was the same with like sexual immorality. Like you had the normalization of contraception and abortion within aristocratic classes, like post-French revolution. It wasn't until these things, but they were still like wicked things. It's just that they became part of the critique of the, of the wealthy classes. Like mm-hmm. see how perverse our wealthy are, how poor they are at leading us. Uh, but then once it became accepted in the middle class, right, then it's basically normal. And then it gets pushed to the lower class where it devastates them. And yeah. that's and that's just how it Yeah. Yeah. Well, bummer. Yeah, now, now I'm sad for other reasons though. <laughs> okay, so there's there it is. Normal so when people say speculate though, they, they are dealing with a word that has been equivocated. Yeah, yeah. And but really what it comes down to is that are you doing this one act? You know? Are you buying low and selling high with no intention of labor or use? Yeah, this is what John Paul II says to this. He says, The ownership of the means of production becomes illegitimate when it is not utilized or when it serves to impede the work of others in an effort to gain a profit, which is not the result of the overall expansion of work and the wealth of society, but rather is the result of speculation. Ownership of this kind has no justification and represents an abuse in the sight of God Mm. and of man. That's just the term that we later, you know, give to speculation there is actually a technical, is a technical term there, unlike where, what's it used in the, in the catechism, um, which, which refers to, um, which actually goes back to a medieval condemnation of this, 
uh, of this idea that's that's speculation that is the buying low no intention of doing anything with yeah. it selling high later yeah see that's just fascinating because in that category it sounds like the pope is placing speculation alongside sodomy historically speaking mm-hmm. like a sin that cry anything about like depriving the what, what are the sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance there's sodomy but there's also depriving the worker of his wages, wages yeah. right so provide so depriving labor of its uh, share in profits mm-hmm. i think you could expand it to there but it also has the all of these qualities have something unnatural about them so speculation has this uh, changes the way we are in touch with reality because it says well i can gain i can get without giving mm-hmm. i can have more by working less Mm-hmm. I cannot do and yet see fruits. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those, the reason it's condemned so strongly is because it, it's a false relation to reality that allows us to ignore and not see what systems of oppression are actually producing yeah. the fruits. Like what things are actually making the thing more valuable uh, that you're not, that you can't see. Yeah, because, none of us think about this. Like, you know, when I was trading, it was just like the numbers are going up in yeah. my brokerage account. Great, you know, it's like if I, you know, click here and press there, then, you know, I got an increase. I don't think about, like, actually the mechanisms of how it's happening. I just realize that they are, you know, or see that they are, mm-hmm. right. you know. And I think it's important to note how qualitatively different it is from gambling, because I know some people try to equate those two, right? Mm-hmm. And it's that, you know, our labor is how we do effectuate our, you know, anthropological point that we are made in the image and likeness of God. Mm-hmm. And so to pervert that through speculation take and take advantage of someone else's labor, so how, like that anthropological point of themselves mm-hmm. and to use it for our own gain is just such an abusive act towards humanity while gambling is more just for pleasure right and something that is is not necessarily a you know a, a, an assertion of one's position yeah in, it, which in is the it, cosmic hierarchy yeah which is why you can see that the church is actually is like yeah you can gamble Right. <laughs> you can gamble a little, basically. Yeah. But they never say you can speculate a little. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they never say that. And in fact, like if you just have a society that's full of gambling, well we know what that is. That's Las Vegas. Like and that's just like a synecdoche for like evil perverse society now. You know? It's right. like none of us want to live in Las Vegas. Sorry if you live in Las Vegas. But then at You're that point here. if you are living in Las Vegas, it's almost like that type of gambling takes on a, a way of labor for them. Like that's how some right. people make their living. So then it does become perverse. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, it's a, it's a land that's only ever defined by that one act. Right. right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. There you go. Um, no, but this is, this is, it's a huge um, predicament because it gets away from the real call for justice and, and actually unity with other people in an economy, okay. which, which, Benedict the Sixteenth actually said, you know, it's not even good enough to have an economy that operates by commutative justice. That's the justice that looks at products instead of people, that tries to compare values of the product with an objective understanding of its value, but rather a dis- point of distributed justice where you're looking at the other person and saying, how can I proportionally aid you and serve you? relative to where I am in my standing of society. I mean, this is this is a huge point that he makes in Caritas and Veritate, Pope Benedict XVI, that is. Mm-hmm. Well, if we're not even meeting the criteria of commutative justice, how much further are we from that point of giving a gift mm-hmm. to other, to mm-hmm. that distributive justice that mm-hmm. the Pope demands us t- to adhere to? Yeah. Speculation doesn't even meet the first 
because there's no equal exchange of what's going on. And people might say there is insofar as like, well, somebody considered it worthwhile more. But that's not what defines a true gift to another. That's just because someone's opinionated in that way. I mean, the catechism condemns that too, you know? Well, so, you're, you're drawing a comparison, I think, mm -hmm. to the idea of establishing a contract be like a contract not being justified on the basis of everyone agreeing to it, but mm -hmm. on what it actually enacts between the people. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly right. You yeah. know, and the catechism actually, I mean, do we have that pulled up here? We can, uh, do you want me to read it off? It's definitely in Ram Navarum, right? Well, it's definitely in Ram Navarum. That's true. Do you know what paragraph it is? No, but I just yeah. remember this meme where there's like a, uh, employer that's saying yeah. like, <clears throat> uh, $12 an hour, you agree? And the worker is like, I agree. And then the Pope is like popped up behind them and is like, isn't there someone you forgot to ask? Oh! <laughs> yeah, I've seen that one. That's a good one. Yeah. I like that one a lot. Well, because basically it, it, the point is very clear, right? Like just because everyone agrees to it doesn't mean that it's good. Right. Yeah. Like, I can get a kid to agree to do almost anything. Like, hey, kid, you want this shiny rock I found? Well, then you got to poison the weeds over there. You know? And so you'd be like, yeah, woo! <laughs> doesn't mean it's good. No. <laughs> yeah, they're they're really uh, concerned with the objective state of what's happening in the economy rather okay. than just our opinion. Other, because yeah. as we see, people's opinions could be insane, right? Yes. Or people's positions could be taken advantage of. You know. Okay, so let's just make sure we're all we're all in the same spot. Trading stocks mm -hmm. is an act of speculation. That's right. Like, it's it's the equivalent of a um, like the. the what do you call that? The scalper at the at the football game, right. you know. He goes out. He buys the ticket from the ticket booth, and he, you know, once all the tickets are sold, he goes out on the street and says, "Hey, I'll sell this to you for two hundred dollars now okay. instead of the hundred that I bought it for." Yeah. Well, but, we might need to describe this more fully, I think. But the well, let me try. And <laughs> but um, in this case, he whomever he sells that ticket to, the next guy buys it and then just turns around and sells it again for more. Or maybe less, you know. And nobody ends up ever going to the game mm -hmm. in this example. So the analogy is a little bit rough. How's that? Well, no, exactly, because yeah. they have no they have no intent of going to the game. So it's same with, you know, if you invest in a company. You have no intention that you're helping out the company because your dollars are actually going to some, you know, business practice or opening up some uh, new line of business, right? Mm -hmm. The money is solely going to the person where you purchase the stock from. And then I'll, I sell it. And receive that cash. So the money's never, you know, there's no intention of helping the company. Yeah, it's really just us, you know, going back and forth. Right, right. And we should make the initial caveat though that in the initial public offering, mm. um, so when a company decides to what's called go public, <laughs> that is to say to start selling shares, to start selling stocks, right. um, then when you buy stocks in this in this one time situation. Um, money does go directly to the exactly. company, right? And they can use that. But there's a barrier to entry there. I think you need to have half a million dollars in assets in oh, a yeah. household to participate in an IPO. So oh, the wow. middle class really isn't, and do, isn't doing that as, as much. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like that it's the obvious point of reality with that you need to have in order to have the unreality, right? Like mm -hmm. at some point, it has to be worth it to a company that's just trying to do something to make a profit, right? It has to be worth it for them to suddenly say, "Hey, sell stocks with our name on it," right? Because <laughs> they're not—they know they're not going to see any of that money because you sell the stock to—I sell the stock to Jacob. Jacob sells it to Will. Will goes and sells it on the street, right? So that initial getting stocks at all 
um, is a moment of reality in the sense that you give them money, they can use the money, and you get a right. stock in exchange. Mm-hmm. But it's it, people talk about stock, the stock market as if that were always the case, right? They say like, "I'm investing in this company by buying this stock because I believe in what they're doing, etc." Right. Um, as if the company gets your money when it doesn't. Now, I think it's important to point out that because our world is the way it is, there are ways that a company can benefit from your buying of their stock. But at least in the initial point of the argument that I think we're at, it just needs to be really clear that these are all indirect ways. Right. It doesn't help the business. That's correct. Yeah. Like the business practices, I mean. Yeah. It helps the shareholders. Right. And the uh, board of directors who, you know, have their stake in the company because of their ownership. So they care about the share price. Okay. So maybe we could, well, we can go to that later. Can we, well, can we explain it nice and slowly? Sure. Because it seems <laughs> important, right? Like, so you have a company, it wants to go public. What changes in the company? Like what, what, what does a company that has stocks attached to it, how does it differ from a company that doesn't? What's the difference between a private and a public company? Well, just, I mean, in simple terms, you have the partnership, so, like, let's say we have a, a private company and we each own a third of it. Yep. And then we go public and then maybe our uh, amalgamated share goes down to, like, 10%, right? Okay. And so then the rest of 90% is, is owned by, you know, whoever wants to, to buy into the IPO or the and, initial and public offering. And these are the people that are largely the wealthy because they need this. They're right. exclusively the wealthy, okay. actually. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then the poor man can, you know, start speculating if he wants at some point. Oh, I see. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I've heard this argument, too. That well, it's stock ownership isn't quite the same as getting a share in the profits, but it has this great benefit that you can be a part of this group that makes decisions, the shareholder groups that make decisions right. about the company. But this is largely untrue. Oh yeah, I mean you have to have at least you know ten percent share of the company to, in order to drive any sort of change, right, or have a voice. Yeah, in yeah. a way, I mean this really it does seem kind of perverse because it seems to uh, enforce rule by the rich, mm-hmm. in the sense that, and I'm not even talking about. Like, I'm not saying it's bad to be rich. I'm just saying that at least within the creation of a company, it's mm-hmm. like, well, we th- three people could be anyone. We could be doing that good old conservative thing, using our pluck and our know-how and making a company that really takes off, right, mm-hmm. and and make a bunch of money. Um, and that's exciting. But when you go public, it's like, it's quite literally an offering. You're like, here, people that can afford it, now you guys decide what the company does next. Right. And that seems to be across the board what happens, Right. Yeah, and then we get rich because our share of the company goes up, right? So that's our. So instead of us getting profits, we simply also get a stocks share, right. that we can sell to other people exactly. for money. It's wild. I mean, this is wild to me. I mean, we talk about it like this is super normal. This is actually <laughs> insane. It's like, it's like the company no longer matters. Like it doesn't. All right. So 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 now. There's a board of directors, right? Right, and these are all the shareholders, and they're the ones who make the decision. And they make a decision about what the company should do, right? But now, their guiding light is the value of their stocks. That is, right. how much can I sell the stocks to the next guy? So all they care about is the perception of the company. That's the upshot of it, right? Well, really the than... first thing that they care about is that 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 stock price is always going to go up. Right, right but it, it will go up yeah. by a good perception. So it doesn't yeah. matter if it, well, you're to, be, to make it really clear, it right. goes up because somebody else perceives the company, perceives the stock as going up yeah. and therefore wants to buy it. Yeah, so there's demand for the stock. So, so what I'm saying is the company actually gets abstracted from its particular work, mm-hmm. right? And is and this might seem like a, a neat or, like, or um, a kind of fine metaphysical point, but... 
it can do anything so long as what it does increases the perception, increases the value of the stock in the perception of the person that might buy the stock. Right. So I could be, uh, we could have a, what, what should our business be together? I really wanted to make a ch fried chicken tacos. So we could, all right, yeah. so we're going to, we get into it. We're yeah. going to do fried chicken tacos. Then we go public. We think this is really going to be a great idea for us. We're making more money. And now we have 90% of our company owned by shareholders. And they say, Hey, you know, what's, really going to increase is if your chicken tacos get into um walmart yeah or like i don't know it could just be it, it could technically be completely arbitrary like let's or if a woman microchips uh, or if let's, you run an ad with oh, a woman in a bikini were eating the taco that could help right right like like but the point is that it has no intrinsic the profits yeah, exactly. are no longer intrinsically connected to tacos no they are now only extrinsically connected to tacos. That is to say, insofar as the production of tacos continues that good perception, mm -hmm. um, then, yeah, let's keep making tacos. But if they don't, let's ditch the tacos and do something else. So it's like the most extreme possible version of, of where we came from. So mm -hmm. the Societas is limited by its particular goal. The company has multiple goals. The East India Trading Company, it's like, well, it's the company, but we're pretty sure they're out there trading. And now, <laughs> and now it's like they could literally do anything. As long as, and I think you actually see this. Mm -hmm. Like, what, what is, what is that, uh, that comp, that Tesla company? Like, what do <laughs> they do? Like, there's cars, but it's also like, what anything Elon Musk thinks of. Yeah. And every time he thinks Getting of something, even if it's stupid, like a tunnel, he's like, I made tunnels. I'm gonna have cars. I can go through the tunnels. Everyone's like, this is awesome, and the stock price increases. But he doesn't even need to actually deliver on this. Yeah. The tunnels are stupid. They just cost. But traffic. and they're also, it's worth knowing they're not profitable. Yeah. So they're losing money, and their share price is positive, and it keeps going up. Well, there's no longer any intrinsic connection between actually doing something to make. Pr I mean, this is this is crazy because I I felt going into this whole um, sort of post liberal vision like, oh, well, I'm I'm one of those guys that wags the finger about people who just want to make profits. But once you start critiquing the stock market, suddenly I'm like, can we at least please make profits? <laughs> can we at least be greedy and do stuff? To make the world better, even though our motivation is only like scraping that dime off the top, like that sounds healthier and more sane than saying like, "Hey, let's be completely detached from the production of jobs, goods, services, anything real. Let's simply make a perceived value, however we want to make it, and exchange it for cash by selling it to suckers, to se selling it to the next guy." Right. Well, I think there's a couple of really important points here. One Gets of me them, all worked up. Yeah, but I think you know, this gets back to an earlier point we made is that I think the only reason why it does work or is in many cases, I mean, Tesla is a great exception to this rule, as many companies are. But a lot of companies, their their profitability does in some way move with its stock price or rather its right. stock price moves with its real profitability. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's just the point because we can't really escape the real. Like humans, we are we are attached to the to reality. Right. We're just grounded here because we're part of it. You know, yeah. we can't actually just go by pure abstraction alone. We right. can't. At the end Thomas, of the day, you have to make an evaluation for why you think that stock is going to go up, and one of the reasons why it's going to go up is going to be because people think the company is doing some good things. Because mm -hmm. that's yeah. what human beings. That's who we are. We're yeah. people that want good things. We want the world to be great. And so when it, when we ask, well, how do I know this company is going to be valued by the next guy who I mm -hmm. want to sell the stock to? Inevitably, we're going to say, well, is the company great? 
Is it doing great things? Mm-hmm. Are we all happy about the company? Is it yeah, producing? Yeah, yeah. Is it making stuff? Um, so it makes sense. But I think what what makes it ins- and this, but this is just what I said about about this change from Christendom to modernity, right? Is that the things feel the same, but they're not the same, and that and that matters. It feels like all these companies are still like the reason that we get money from stocks is at the end of the day because companies succeed in doing real things in the world. It feels like that, but it's not that. It, it, th- there's a relation, sure, but the relation is extrinsic. Maybe Apple continues to make its market value, that is to say how much its stocks are worth, um, maybe it increases on the basis of Apple's actual production and giving of things to the world, of making things. Maybe it does, but maybe it doesn't, <laughs> right? The point is Apple could increase its stocks just by taking two years to say they were going to make a new product that they never make. And during that time, you could you could benefit on it. Yeah, I mean, the more common ways through share buybacks. So this is something that has really surged in the last 20 years in particular, What's where companies will take the profits that they did make yep. and then buy their own stocks with it thus forcing the demand for them up because there's fewer of them and thus raising the share price. Oh, because they, so they buy their own stocks and this makes it look like their stocks are increasing. Are increasing. Yeah. So for instance, Apple, you just mentioned Apple, the, from 2015 to 2020, I think their profitability was exactly the same pretty much. I mean, it just like did not change, but their stock price quadrupled. What? So you really think that you're four times as great as you were five years ago, mm-hmm. but you haven't changed what you're doing. You're the same company operating the same way, and that's fine. There's no judgment against like just doing the same thing. If you hit like what you're you know what you're supposed to be doing, you've hit what you're supposed to be doing. I yeah. don't think they they're they're a good company, but that's a different matter, you know. Yeah. Um, what's really strange is that there is not that genuine correlation. Because they're committed to continual growth. That is the goal. That, that's the goal, is to always be able to expand. And really, the truth of the matter is that as soon as you go, you make that transition from private to public, you are making that commitment. You're selling your soul at that point to always being committed to growth. Yeah. If I own the bakery down the street, the downtown bakery yeah. over here, I'm happy selling selling you know my bagels in my in the morning the cookies that are there I don't have bagels in the morning I'm just making that up the cookies in the morning really that's yeah. their thing and um, and serving the community in that way and then just the profits that are coming back I'm I'm happy that they have that it provides for me it provides for my employees you know et cetera et cetera but that's not the case because the board as we've mentioned already, the only way that they are compensated, the board of directors are compensated, is by having that share price always increase because they're not getting paid in the same way. So yeah, they always yeah. need that up. That means that their, de- their dedication is always to, to changing, to having a better perception and to raising that share price. So you're saying that... that they uh, never have enough. In, in well, right. Words. Well, like yeah. an equilibrium in profits mm-hmm. is not beneficial to a increasing perception and value it's not beneficial to the board of directors and the shareholders right so but doesn't this like i mean maybe this is all like super obvious to people and i'm just like like i feel like i woke up yesterday and i'm it's like the world makes sense to me now because it seems to me like we live in a insane world in which we care 
about what rich people think and do, and we just sit and watch companies ruin the world. Um, so I'm thinking of like Facebook doing meta, doing obviously stupid things. And I've always just thought like, well, I guess, I guess just you make a certain amount of money and you just become kind of unhinged and you start like you're bored. So you start making new things and <laughs> new acquisitions and you somehow you're just so greedy that you have to buy uh, every other competition. I guess monopoly is just like a desire in the human heart. I had all these like what I think now are really false ideas about humanity, like that there's some kind of natural tendency to like like a almost gluttonous greed. Like I have to amass everything. I have to constantly be, you know, the, mm. and it's like, wait a minute. No, no, we have, maybe that's true to an extent. We have made an actual institution whereby the things that, that the lies that people say become true. Like the whole, if you're not, you know, if you're not growing, you're, you're shrinking. If you're not winning, you're losing. That's <laughs> <one>. <laughs> um, It's like, yeah, that's enforced by virtue of going public. It's like, in a way, Facebook has to do, like, it has to grow. It has to expand. It has to win. It has to win, and it has to even make up its own territories in which to expand, like, into our minds. Like, it simply has to do more things. Yeah. And if it's not doing that, then it's not increasing in market value, which means that you're not able to sell its stocks. Mm -hmm. And it just seems like a, a way of institutionally... Um, hooking people to a, a machine that goes way beyond them that will simply gobble everything up. Given yeah, and, and F.A. Hayek says it's one of the founders of, of the liberal you know, thought movement, um, especially with free markets. He says that you know, the, the market is something that is unintelligible and must be submitted to by the individual, and it's just beyond our comprehension. Yeah. But we must submit to it as it is a god, in a, in a sense. And, yeah. and, and that you know, rings true with what you're saying. Like, no one really understands how... The, how the stock market works, I guess, mm. because they would be questioning like we're questioning it right now, right? Um, so, but yeah. they all they care about is just perpetual growth. Because as long as it keeps growing, then there's no need to question it, right? It's just a game of musical chairs at that point. Sure. But once the music stops, as it does, you know, once a lifetime, perhaps, you know, like a 08 financial crisis or Great Depression. Yeah. Um, but outside of those, you know, unique scenarios, it doesn't it doesn't really matter the reality of it. Yeah, it seems like the only way that you could justify the stock market in this sense is just that, well, I'm individually participating in something that's obviously destroying the world and rewarding avarice. You know, and actually, I think it's important to realize that the catechism itself warns against this. Because in order for speculation to occur, then you have, and perpetual speculation to occur, for that ticket to the football game to always circulate and yeah. no one ever just like going to the game, you have to have a lot of people wanting to buy and sell. And and that means that you have to get more people in the market. You know, the Catechism warns again. This is the 1996 Catechism quoting the Roman Catechism or the Council from or the Catechism out of the Council of Trent. And it says, uh, "Merchants who desire scarcity and rising prices, who cannot bear, warns against these people who cannot bear to be the only ones buying and selling, so that they themselves can sell more dearly and buy more cheaply." And it's like, like that is something that the catechism that the church is warning us about. Don't be one of these people. You're just going to get robbed. It's a technical skill that others are better at than you. And it would, and I think a lot of people say, I, I'm, or would think or respond to this and say, but I, I'm not sure I'm taking advantage of. I mean, I'm growing by 7% every year. 
you know, I look, I open up my account and I see that my total money is growing. But the question that really matters is how does that purchasing power, the amount of money in your account, how does that relate to the things that we actually want? You know, how does it correspond to actually having real ownership, the ownership that John Paul II, you know, speaks about and commends that the tradition tells us that we should search after and find? How does it pertain to the stability of your family, the freedom of your family, your self-sufficiency? Like, how does it, how, how are you insured about your own security? Are you just calculating all the time? Are you worried? Because you're not in control of that number going up. You don't have technical knowledge of how they do Some people do. But you also, your labor does not correspond to your wealth. Totally. And that is actually not some, just a matter of injustice. It's actually kind of a, the grounds for fear. Because there's not the proper causal relationship that we have in this life. It's not like if I'm if I go and I sweat for a while and I work on something that I know that there will be some sort of result for my labor yeah. because I'm causing it. I'm digging the hole. The hole is getting deeper. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have that with speculation. You know, it is this calculated game. And if you don't know how to do it, you, you're just looking at numbers and you're you're starting to fear because your life is in somebody else's hands. Yeah. No, and I think I think it does add to this generalized anxiety that seems to be characteristic of. Um, us, <laughs> but it also, you know, it it also just. <sighs> there was a statistic that you read me earlier that was very shocking, and it goes to your point about the 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 non relation between having more money as as a number and having purchasing power, and that was basically the. You you looked at this period of great financialization, right? People getting in to uh, speculation, especially through four hundred one k's. So the middle class kind of entering into this, mm-hmm. and you showed that in the same period. I didn't do this. You, the National Bureau of Economic Research did this. Is that what you're talking about? That's I thought. Okay, that's one of your nicknames. So I didn't know. If, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so what they pointed to was the fact that over that same time period. Um, while we were making more money, right? Mm-hmm. So people had more numbers, they had more money. Uh, businesses were producing less goods and there were less jobs, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the financial sector is growing. That got a lot of jobs there now. Um, <laughs> but, okay, so that can sound kind of um, like just just some stats, but what, what does it actually mean? Well, it means that increasingly you live in a world in which you have more money and less things to buy. Mm-hmm. in which you have more money but less quality to buy, mm-hmm. in which you have more money being made and less jobs. Yeah. So increasingly, it describes this world, which is this sense of like, if I listen to the rhetoric of people, you'd think we're living in the greatest, most free, most abundant time in human history. It's like anyone can get into this financial thing. Mm-hmm. We're all able to do it now. The doors have been broken open. These financial tricks are at our hands. And so we should all be, you know, living the dream. Everyone's a millionaire. Everyone's becoming rich. And yet, like, it's very obvious, especially in the last 10 years or so, like, that the world is becoming crap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what that stat is, is so you're talking about, of all the equity created from 1989 to 2017, only 25% of the growth in equity was attributable to real economic production. So just a fourth of the growth is accountable to, like, real, you know, change the, to the world. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think 
worth pointing out is probably the greatest objection to you know our way of thought and um, and you know staying out of markets is that you know how do we maintain our purchasing power with inflation, and I think you know it's worth saying that um, with speculation and, and increasing our, our capital assets or mo monetary assets and without creation, that's what causes inflation yeah. because you have more money and, and no goods to spend it on. So right. the only, the, the greatest counter to that is to create actual goods to offset that in, increase in, in monetary value. Right, right. Um, and so that is the, the only way to stop inflation. Right. So insofar as we're all just scared and operate out of that fear and say, well, I don't want my cash to lose value, so I'm going to invest in the stock market. Right. So you're we're just adding creating, to the issue. We're creating the problem. Right. Which is that there's no jobs. Exactly. Or less jobs. Or, and less, or no goods, yeah. Yeah, and less production. Yeah. yeah or the jobs are stupid. You know, they're, the jobs that are not actually attributing to the production of real goods. Now, I mean, as Will pointed out, the that 25% actually does include the administration administering services, <laughs> which is crazy. But even we talk about a lot of the services that we are providing today for quite a number of reasons, they don't attribute to, or they do not contribute to the lowering of prices Yeah, because well, they're superfluous. Well, the biggest industry is finance, right? And real yeah. estate. So, it, I mean, it's <laughs> the middlemen who are effectuating these transactions of speculation. Oh my gosh, this is horrible. <laughs> this is horrible. So like part of the real economic growth that we're talking about is stockbrokers? Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> it's worse than I thought. I thought we were lumping that under fake things. No, no, no that's part of the reason. Yeah, because they're, they're earning wages. Right, they're earning wages. Of course, of course. Oh, that's terrible. That's like that and I, yeah, finance and real estate's either the biggest or the second largest sure. industry. I mean I I believe it. I believe it. I believe it on the basis of the number of people that hear about what Nupality has to say and then say, as a stockbroker, I'll tell you. This is, <laughs> this is all wrong. <laughs> we tried to come up with an analogy for, uh, not as a stockbroker, because a lot of them will actually admit that we're right. Um, it's more the financial advisors. advisors yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you had a good analogy for financial advisors. Well, you thought it was a pharmacist, right? I, I was trying to think. It's like, is that a good description as a pharmacist? Because they, like, they're not the ones that like produce the medicine. You know, they're like, or, or like even diagnose you. They just kind of get it off the shelf and go grab it. Yeah. But and Will thought I was wrong. Yeah. No, I mean, that might be, I don't know. No, I was thinking no. about I was my, thinking... my father in law is a pharmacist, so I have to defend him. There's a, he's <laughs> not a middleman. They do the the actual chemical compounding and mixing of the drug. So it's, oh, like okay. A, so I have no idea what it I'm is talking like, about then. Yeah. It is mediating, but there's like content to the mediation. Okay, cool. Okay. Well, I mean, a financial advisor is mediating, and there is content to that mediation as well, because sure. they are providing you with, you know, dumbed down information of sure. what to invest in. So I guess that is analogous in a way. I did, I did it like when I was in high school. I did like some weird internship with a financial advisor guy, and um, and at one point, I he's like showing me all, you know, like the differences that everybody knows about is this like, you know, small cap, large, you know, international, whatever, domestic, whatever, and and he and he and I say. Okay, yeah, but like, uh, how do you choose, um, like, what are in the mutual funds that you're selling people, you know, or or that you're administering for people? And he goes, "Oh, I have no idea." Mm -hmm. I go, "What? That seemed like the fun part, you know." <laughs> and and I, th you know, and a lot of financial advisors might, well, they'll just be mad about this in general. Um, they're already mad at us, um, but. You know, I think that is kind of important to say is that they provide a real service to people insofar as they really call anxiety. 
I think, you know, you've seen this up close. They say, like, look, you're worried about your future. We can come up with a plan for you, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and sell you security. I, yeah. It's, it's wild how how normal it is. Like, I got a piece of junk mail that was like, have you planned for your, uh, um, it was selling uh, life insurance for grandparents so that when they die, their kids can get some money. Mm. And it was all like, you plan to die yet? Don't let that go unwasted. That's a benefit. <laughs> get in on this right now. Your kids could really, you know, have some money for college on the basis of your, your death. And it's just like, we're just mailing these things to each other. We're just like, you know, it's like like the, the production, the, the reason, I mean, we've already discussed this before, right? That stock markets, uh, an, another reason that they're, kind of parasitic on the good is they feel like investments precisely because they're what we can do with superfluous uh, mm. wealth, right? Like mm-hmm. you can't really invest in stocks if you need the money right now mm-hmm. for your vacation and your family. So so it's so it's the use of superfluous wealth only, the difference being that unlike what Christianity has always taught, namely that all of our superfluous wealth belongs by justice to the poor, stock market says, oh, that superfluous wealth um, belongs to you to make more superfluous wealth. Right. Um, and, and this is why people use the inflation argument is because they know somewhere deep down in their conscience that they can't make the argument they want to make, which is, this will make me richer. Right. So they have to say That's that... That's true. So, but I mean, I do know a lot of people who are legitimately worried about retirement and stuff. Sure. But this is the thing that, you know, I, <laughs> I, I it's kind of hard to, to say in some ways, but it's just not the only option. And in fact, it's a very new option. I mean, really, the the tax code 401k was developed in 1978, you know, and didn't really become popular until the 80s, you know, with under a guy named Ted Bennett who like figured out how how to do all of it. It's like really like you think that something that was created in 1980 is like going to save you at the end of your life. Like, what did people do before? And Ted Bennett was asked that once. Like, I don't know how any of us lived prior to this. And he laughed at the interviewer and he said, nobody worried about retirement before. Like the best thing that I've created, he said that he wants to blow the whole system up. You know, he hates 401ks and, and for many reasons, but a big part of it, one of his main arguments is that, that the financial sector is just preying upon good meaning people. It's the same argument that, that the catechism makes yeah. that they're just warning against people who are being subjected yeah. to people who are better than them at trading and don't realize that even though their numbers are going up that their freedom is going down mm-hmm. and he says you know nobody worried about it prior because everybody has families but we don't have families now as we had families then mm-hmm. you know he he actually has said that at the time he wanted to get out of accounting because it was so corrupt and his entire job all the time was working for for corporations that were trying to lower the incomes of their employees. You know, and that's what they had tasked him with doing when he found a 401k. And he said, "All right, here's a way. Like you don't have you know you're not going to get taxed, Mr. Corporation, for this money that you're going to give to to your employees here. Uh, they don't get it now. They yeah. they can't use it for a long time." So they're not going to like that. Maybe if you did a matching thing, that will make them think that you're like really on their side. But your match is going to be less than what you're taxed. And so you get to save money that way. Mm-hmm. This is this is like the whole scheme that he came up with. And he thought, well, maybe maybe this will help because 
you know, the corporation's just going to hurt you anyway. You're going to hurt the employee anyway. The employee is going to get some benefit, and he'll be taught how to be a saver instead of just, a, you know, a, a spender, you know, yeah. a frivolous spender. And he thought that was the one, and he still, still, like today, thinks that that's the one benefit that helped is that people are now savers. You know, there's things to go. He's not a Catholic guy, yeah, you know, sure. uh, clearly. <laughs> but but he says now he doesn't want to blow it up, and he feels just like as if uh, – we should link to this article – uh, but he he feels as if he's in the same place again as he was then, and that was he could continue his job that he was performing then or be a Christian, but he could not be both. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's just a different definition of wealth. I mean, our our society views a wealthy man as, you know, single, living in a New York City apartment, maybe $10 million in the bank, terrible tastes, no friends versus, you know, someone maybe here in Steubenville with 12 kids and 100K in the bank and that person's poor and the guy in New York City's wealthy. Yeah. But it's just, it's completely perverse. Yeah. And yeah. they probably have a farm here. Or yeah. Like I'd, yeah. I'd rather uh, have human I'm beings absurdly as assets. refined taste. <laughs> You're so dainty. Yes. <laughs> so what would, I mean, it seems like the, the principal critique of the stock market is really a social critique. I mean, we have, I mean, you debated Trent Horn on this, where often the question is very much like individual, like, can I do it or not? Mm -hmm. But the thing that I'm really enjoying about this conversation is that what we're talking about is, is has it been good for us as a people, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think that's where it seems obvious that, no, it hasn't. It hasn't been, it hasn't been good for us as a people. Mm -hmm. The world is worse. The world is more financial. Um, we have more money, less things, worse work, and we have a lack of real investment because all of that superfluous wealth that otherwise within a Christian mindset would be going to create work, real work, and then profit sharing is now going to stock ownership. Mm -hmm. And that this kind of ownership is simply not ownership in a meaningful sense, the way we tend to mean ownership. And so the, the resulting world is a word where is a world where people use the word ownership and say, "Well, I own this company and that company." Well, they don't even say that. I don't even think they really say that. Uh, sometimes they do if they're pressed, but but in fact, they don't have any of those qualities of ownership that we would expect from investment, which actually um, gives you a share in the profits of a particular work, and which implies the the uh, what John Paul II said. That is to say, that through your use of money, you're dignifying the labor of others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, a great hero of John Paul II was the venerable Fulton Sheen. Yeah, I was looking at his quote. Are you going to read it to us? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is in response to the this argument, right, that, well, with stock markets, we can all own companies. And isn't mm -hmm. that great? Um, he says, some representatives of monopolistic, monopolistic <laughs> words, <laughs> capitalism... Are... Sensing evil in their system, have tried to silence criticism by pointing to the diffused ownership in the great corporations. They advertise, no one owns more than 4% of the stock in this great company. Or they print lists of stockholders, showing that these include farmers, school teachers, baseball players, taxi drivers, and even babies. But there is a catch to this argument, and it, is it and it is this. Although it is true that individuals of small means own shares in the company, it is not true that they run the company. Their responsibility for its policies is nil. Possession properly has two faces, two aspects. 
We all have a right to private property, but this is accompanied by our responsibility for its righteous use. Everyone admits that the farmer who owns a horse is obligated to feed and care for it, but in the case of stocks and bonds, we often forget that the same principle should prevail. Right? So he says right then and there that like the word ownership is still in play, but the meaning has changed. That center has been stripped out and the exterior remains. Yeah. Um, we say we own the company, but that doesn't have any responsibility on our part. Um, even the kind of responsibility that you could have as a shareholder is limited by the necessity of the shareholders to work for an increased share price. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like some people make the most absurd arguments here where they think you can like get on a board of shareholders and just like destroy all the evils of a company and make it good because of your power. It's like only if all the other shareholders agree and they only ever agree on the basis of increased market value, increased stock price, because that's why they own the freaking shares. So this fantasy world where it's just like generalized power, like I'm going to go sit on the board and say, hey, you know what? I think we should uh, we should promote the Catholic Church in every city in America. That's what we should be doing as a company. And I'm a shareholder and you ought to listen to me. Yeah, sure. If that produces increased market value, everyone else is going to vote yay. But that is the point, is that the, the, the company has been spiritually devoid of any particular meaning outside mm-hmm. of the ability to sell stocks to other people. Mm-hmm. So at that point, like, yeah, if the faith can serve that, if goodness can serve market value, if virtue can serve market value, if family values can serve market value, I mean, yeah, let's do it. But the point is these have all been prostituted. They're just for money. That's what they're for. And so you don't get to make this this ridiculous argument. And it's, it's not just ridiculous logically. It's ridiculous practically. No one does this, right? <laughs> Like, like there are no people now, but maybe there's one person, maybe two Elon people. Musk. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of, like, people who are very rich and so have this capacity. But if you're talking about, like, where we're having the argument, which is among Christians, yeah. if you think that there's some kind of, like, Christian revolution possible through the taking over of share, like, through the taking over of, uh, of board, board of directors positions, you're insane. And you're lying to yourself. You want money, and you, and you want security. That's what you want. You are not going any. You are never becoming a board member, and if you do, you're never going to get around the logic of in- increased market value as the very raison d'être of the uh, of your position. Exactly. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I realize that. Keep going. Keep going. No, no. I'm just yelling at people who aren't necessarily the ones listening. And that's <laughs> <laughs> some some poor guys out there, like. But yeah. they're going to feel like they're never going to do this again. Like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> what did I do? Is he talking to me? <laughs> no, I just get worked up because, like, I'm just so sick of, of – it's not even being wrong. Of course we can be wrong and we can be sinful, but, like, the lying. Yeah. But, like, saying that stocks are – and the stock market is about something that everyone knows it's not. Like, it's it's not about ownership of companies. It's not about, like, changing the world for the better. It's just not about those things, and we know that. It's just we say this because our consciences are... St- I mean, it's great that we say it because it shows how afflicted our consciences mm-hmm. really are about about this form of ownership. Yeah, but as we often say, you know, the, the, the form really reveals the purpose of whatever you're doing. So when, in the case of... Or their origins reveal the purpose of why it created. In, in both of these cases, Piece in, the, in both cases, whether you're looking at the form or the origins, it really reveals that the point of the secondary market, the buying and selling of stocks to other people, was created for an increase in money. Yeah. That's it. And it has succeeded. And it has. Yeah, yeah and one yeah. of the most fundamental aspects of the societas was that 
it had a terminus, right? Mm -hmm. And so then you could actually say, okay, my investment is for some end, some good. Mm -hmm. But without a terminus now, I don't know how anyone can justify that their investment is for some common good. Like, okay, if I take my money out in August versus yeah versus October, I'm benefiting the common good that way. Like, how? That's a great point. <laughs> what does that have to point. do? With <laughs> Yeah, because we use the word end to mean right. purpose for a reason. Right. You know, it shows when we've, <laughs> yeah. we've hit our mark. There's no mark to be hit. No. You know? <laughs> that's, that's so smart. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. And, you know, it's this, it's this other thing that, that, that stock, own, stock ownership is like this. Um, it's just it morally compromises the soul because when you own, you might have this insane idea that you're, like, directly benefiting the company. Um, and we forgive you for it. I had it too. Um, you have that idea, but then you run into the problem you just mentioned, which is that, well, if the company is detached from any particular purpose on the basis of it going public, then whatever it does is what it does. And so then you say, okay, well, I'm going to be a really conscientious investor because for some reason this hasn't inspired you just to like move to student mill. And <laughs> so you say, oh, I'm going to be really conscientious. I'm going to watch all these companies, make sure, you know. But it's like, yeah, okay, so say you're invested in Amazon, and you're like, they're just great, they're just great. Oh, no, they're using child slaves. I'm out. How do you get out? By selling the stock to somebody else. Right. That's what divestment means. Divestment doesn't mean you, like, morally reprimand the company that you're involved in. It means that you get somebody into your morally compromised position. Like, the only way to get out of the stocks is to trick other people into doing them, unless you're going to go to the company itself and say, please, annihilate my stock, which I hear you can do, question mark? There's some kind of, like thing sometimes where you annihilate can annihilate it not annihilate it sorry <laughs> it's a little too even that they are not even god Des isn't so no like there's some way to like um is there ever any way to cash out a stock besides selling it to another shareholder i'm not aware there maybe i'm not sure maybe there's i, I doubt not. it certainly it's but certainly even no in, does even it. divesting i mean you're still because the, what props up the share price is the transactions right and so by participating in a selling of the share, you are propping up the share price even more. Right. So if you're agreeing to sell it for hypothetically, if, the, yes. if it's growing right. for more than you purchased it for. So, yep. so it is, your it liquidation is, is helping the company. It's literally impossible to, to get out of the stock market and have that, the effect of your getting out be some kind of uh, moral Punishment. disapproval of yeah. the company. Yeah. It is kind of interesting. Just yeah. as a, kind of another side to look at the, form of the com of the stock market is that the only way in which you can actually reap the benefits of your speculation of your investment so-called investment is by giving up ownership or you know the light claim of ownership that you have of the stock you know whereas the like 19th century capitalists could go over to the factory that he had point at it and say that's mine you can't really point at anything, you know, for for the for a publicly traded company in the same way. You can't point at a stock and say that's mine, and especially you can't really reap the benefits of, of that thing either because it's it's not a physical entity in yeah. the same way. I mean, think of modern corporations with businesses in so many different countries. I mean, yeah. all these different products are selling. You have no idea what you're actually buying or. What what even makes you like the company in the first place? Yeah. You have no idea what what, it, what that is. Right, and this is another one of those lies that I think we tell ourselves, which is that we want to invest in companies that we like. It's like you just need to put an asterisk and just say, yeah, insofar as 
what you really want, which is a return on your investment, mm -hmm. applies. Right. And then those are the companies of which you choose <laughs> yeah. which ones you like. Right. So let's just be honest. What we want is a return. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You know, and, and the, this puts the Christian, I think, in a tricky position that I don't think he should really get involved in. Um, because one of the arguments, and I think this is actually a pretty good argument, or at least it's clever. Um, some people will hear what we're saying, and they'll say, okay, well, it seems like you're trying to make two claims. On the one hand, you're saying that, well, Christians shouldn't participate in these wicked companies um, by stock investment. On the other hand, you're saying that the stock investment somehow doesn't benefit the company at all. And this seems to be a contradiction, but I hope by now we've made it clear. It's like, no, 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 what's happened is that the benefit to the company has been ex has been made extrinsic to its actual productive work towards its production of profits and its production of goods and its creation of jobs. Mm -hmm. That has been made extrinsic to it, not unrelated, but extrinsic. Mm -hmm. um, so that you're in this really awkward position with stock ownership where, on the one hand, it is true to say in a limited way that you are promoting the company with your buying and selling of its stock, right? But you're not promoting it in such a way that has, as we mentioned, uh, any, uh, your ownership doesn't have any effect on it um, in terms of its actual operations. Um, but, so, so you have the ability to essentially, once you buy the stock, only promote the company. So you, you don't have, you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, you, can pr you promote the company precisely as something that benefits from stock ownership right so you have enough ownership to say people should like this people should continue to buy stocks from this and so you have enough in you have enough ownership to essentially increase the positive perception of companies that's what your stock ownership does right. mm -hmm. and you're benefiting the shareholders and you're benefiting the, the shareholders yeah yeah exactly so you can so there is a way in which the argument st still holds. It's just that it needs to be really clear. Yeah, you're well, almost just applauding their efforts or their initiatives. Yeah, it's like applause. Like, That's a really good example. Yeah, like keep keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not the case that what we're saying is that you're taking money and giving it to the the geniuses over at Alphabet Incorporated and asking them to use that money for a good right. end. That's not happening. But you are saying, Google baby, Google baby, Google baby, and everyone else around you is saying, Oh, yes, Google's good. Yeah. So it's a it's it's both perverse and infantile. Like your ownership is is laughable in terms of actually meaning anything, but it's just enough to make you somewhat culpable for the wicked things that these companies do because you're sitting there applauding them. Mm -hmm. So from a moral perspective, you're gaining culpability in terms of the wickedness of the company while losing mm -hmm. responsibility that would make you able to change the wickedness of the company. So it's like I wouldn't touch that with a ten foot pole. And you're habituating yourself into greed. So well, right, like individually, yeah. I mean, you, you're all of your uh, defenses of like good companies versus bad companies is just post facto. You right. actually did it because you wanted a return. And right. now you're mad because we're critiquing the stock market. <laughs> so you're desperately scrambling for some way in which it can be serving the common good and it can be this sort of moral act of, of bettering the universe, which is, it's not true. You know it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know it. And, and you, you have, I mean, we could, I guess, sit down and line out all the, responses that people could give to this like the biggest one i could think of is um why well, did the intellectual work of discovering the company and, and work has a reward <coughs> it's not true not well that's not true in that way yeah <laughs> um in things like that but i think the you know the honest answer is like well look the the idea is are you actively loving I'm your sorry, neighbors can we just stop though do they really say that because it's oh, yeah. it's, it's working for the sake of the production, right? right? That deserves the reward. It's not just that you did some work. Yeah. 
No, it's like uh, the equate the expending of energy, like the burning of calories almost. Okay, <laughs> so because Wall Street executives do cocaine and stay up all night to make those big trades, they deserve what they get because they've they've applied labor. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Are you in? People don't say that. Yeah, uh, I they almost can... don't want to cite like some of the books because they're written by Catholics <laughs> that say this. You know. <laughs> okay. Okay. But I will if you force me. No, to. no, no. no, no, no. <laughs> oh, they, so they just think like. <laughs> So if I'm just there, like, like <laughs> where does that principle stop? Can I just like, is, is, okay, I work my butt off to have a slave state in, in Southeast Asia. Is it insofar as I'm laboring, I deserve a reward for my profit? It just happens to be that it's, it's wicked and that's extrinsic to the fact, like, like they just think, they just think doing stuff. Yeah. Reaps a reward. Okay. That's dumb. <laughs> But honestly, I think you're right. I mean, Here's another say, one I've okay. heard. Sorry, before you're, you're trying to be conciliatory at the end here, and I'm too worked up to be conciliatory. Uh, they say I have heard it said that this thing, uh, this speculative thing. Now let me get this right, because every time I hear it, it's like I lose my mind a little bit, so it makes it hard to repeat. So maybe if I if I reference it though, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, they say that this helps societies allocate resources where they're needed. So so if I buy stocks in like a shoe company or something, then somehow I'm showing the need for shoes in a <laughs> given society, which you wouldn't right. otherwise know apparently, and that then through this knowledge. Re- this is where I get a little confused because it doesn't seem like this would directly affect production. But in in I think this fairy tale, resources are then allocated. No, I don't actually understand it. Oh, so if I mean hypothetically, if you know your investments were directly tied to production, yeah, you would only invest where there's opportunity for sure. production to be made, right? So there has to be a demand for those goods. So that you, are produced. oh, I see. So, you're so like there's the a demand antenna. for shoes. You're gonna go invest in a shoe company. So the investor is like the antenna that like detects opportunity sure because the people the big dummies just making the shoes don't they're just making shoes right dumb but they need your investment to produce them right but your investment also tells society at large that it is a worthwhile sure it's like the okay yeah it's self-reinforcing i guess i see and i guess there's a certain logic to that if if stocks were the same as investments there would be a certain logic to that you only invest with this opportunity although it doesn't really exactly like morally clarify it because there could be presumably an opportunity for like you know, contraception, abortion, prostitution, and the same principle would apply. You're just saying that the in a amoral universe, mm-hmm. this just shows what people desire. I guess. Okay. Right. All right. Yeah, I guess there could be a good there. You know, no, like in a <laughs> no, yeah, functional definitely. way. Absolutely. If, if investment was investment, like if it enabled directly the production of of things. Right. It just doesn't seem to apply to. No, no, not today. The kind of indirect benefit given to companies through stock right. investment. Okay, thank you. That was clarifying. <laughs> it really was. No, I, I, I hear these things, and I unfortunately am too... Um, I sometimes don't take them as seriously as I should. And then, yeah. I and then I can't quite articulate the position. I just know it as like a, a response. Yeah. You know? I, I think the thing that... The linchpin for me personally was March 2020. <laughs> you know, everything crashed. I, I had divested at this point. Um, which was itself a pretty big move from, you know, just personally speaking, but, um, but it was just so tempting. 
everything was low. You just know the government's about to pump the economy full of a whole bunch of cash. I didn't know how much at the time, but I knew it was going to be a lot. And just looking around and trying to say, what's a morally illicit company that I could invest in, you know? And, you know, Netflix, nah, you know, I don't, I don't want to do that. Amazon, absolutely not. Obviously not. Tesla, nope. Uh, I mean, look at all this child labor, all these kids that are dying in the mines. I mean, this is a continual lawsuit going on. And I thought, well, maybe Home Depot. You're like, I like wood. You know, I, <laughs> I want people to continue to learn how they work with their hands. And, and I really bemoan the fact that the average age of somebody that knows how to use power tools is 60 years old. So maybe I'll, I'll buy some Home Depot stock. But obviously that wasn't being honest with myself either because the money doesn't go to Home Depot on the one hand. And on the other, if I really loved Home Depot, I would just go and buy more wood from them. I would tell my yeah. friends to go and buy them. I would try and, and appeal to one of the managers at the store in Robinson to found another sto store in Steubenville so we didn't just have to go to Lowe's all the time, you know? Yeah, no, it's a very but, good point. Like stock... Like, if you're going to make the argument that it benefits companies, mm -hmm. even admitting all of this extrinsicism, mm -hmm. um, it is obviously the case that stock ownership is one of the least direct and beneficial ways, uh, effective ways to benefit a company. Mm -hmm. Like, I have to signify to the population at large through an increased stock price that something is worthwhile. Mm -hmm. It's like, bro, I can do that easy. I'll just tell you it's worthwhile. <laughs> like, and, and the point is not to just make a joke. The point is to say that if your motivation was what you say it is, that, oh, I just sat down and I wanted to give some companies a boost. And so I bought all these. It's like, no, you didn't. You wanted money and you're post facto justifying it, right? Because if you really were like, hey, I've got six companies that I love, do you know how much more effective you would be just by like standing for them online? I mean, that's what they really want you to do is just to like tweet about it. Right. And th that is going to be way more effective. In fact, that directly achieves what stocks indirectly achieve, which is perceived value. Yeah. But, but no one does that. The companies because... don't care what you think. Oh, yeah. But if you work for an investment bank and you're a uh, research analyst, they do care. Oh, <laughs> so that's how you employ them. Wait, say that again? Sorry. So, I mean, some roles on Wall Street are to uh, analyze stocks and just produce research. I see. That's just passed around, you know, the investment community for them to read. And they... Um, they advise on valuation metrics and whatnot mm -hmm. and give their opinion. Mm -hmm. So that's essentially what you're talking about. I see. So you're just basically working for Wall Street for free in my imaginary scenario. Who's working for Wall Street? The the promoter of the the non-stock invested promoter of companies. Maybe I didn't understand your... Uh... No, I mean, the guy's making a wage for the bank, right? I see, right. He works at a bank. Okay. <laughs> there's some confusion going on here that's all right is. don't worry about it but i'm always confused by bankers yeah yeah i, I, I think that's to, the point maybe, <laughs> just use I, let's let's uh kind of end with this i mark and i wrote a and will helped a considerable amount with this article that we wrote in issue 2.3.1 3.1 yeah. of new the green one all the facts without mark getting worked up yeah, that's right. <laughs> More succinctly uh, put. And beautiful footnotes. Um, Thanks, Ruben. <laughs> uh, it, if you want the argument more in full. But let's just end, end with this and, and just remind ourselves what St. Paul said regarding speculation and, um, and work. He said this to the Thessalonians. 
When we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are busy. They are not busy. Excuse me. They are busy bodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Take note of those who do not obey what we say in this letter. We have nothing to do with them so that they may be ashamed. That's excommunication. Now the Greek word that St. Paul utilizes here for busybodies is periergosomai. And I think this is a really important, this is just kind of one of those fun things when Greek really helps, is that dictionaries of ancient Greek, I'm just going to read this part, say this word literally means, quote, to tell others how to buy and sell, end quote, or to bargain, quote, bargain, haggle, peri taste to mace, end quote. That means over things saleable in the market. And that just makes sense as a definition because if St. Paul is talking about people who are not doing any work and are idle and yet presumably eating because they persist, then they must be gaining in some way without work. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, the only way to gain without work is to buy low and sell high. Yeah. So use your power as a middleman. Yeah. So if people are really kind of struggling with this, fighting against themselves, I mean, this is something that I think we really have to slowly come to. I mean, the fact that I was like sitting there over my computer, ailing over which companies to buy or not buy, and then finally coming to the realization that the only reason I would ever do this is just because I want more money. We got to realize that's just not Christian, you know, and it's slow. And we've been told and catechized into a different teaching, Mm -hmm. a teaching that is of mammon, not of Christ, Mm -hmm. that is of this world, not of the heavenly Jerusalem. And we, we sometimes have to be slow with ourselves, be patient, kind of work through it, struggle through it. Yeah. But this is the thing about the Christian tradition. We can't just go off and say, you know, I, f- I feel different about it. You know, my intentions are good when I'm doing this. That's not right. And even though we are commanded to listen to our consciences, we are also commanded, even more importantly, to form them properly. And we're not going to get that just by thinking on our own that comes by docilely receiving the tradition as it has been handed on to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, my um, fervor, <laughs> that seems like flattery. My, my <laughs> Your se- fervor, Mark, I can say my that. Sense that thank you. My sense that this is all very ridiculous and obvious is a, uh, a gift from, from people like you, you two, because... I didn't have to deal with this as a norm, you know, it didn't mm. come from my family. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to deal with this as an anxiety, which mm-hmm. is to say that, like, I have been privileged enough not to sit there thinking, like, I'm going to lose all my money. Well, I and I am privileged also just by disposition. Like, it's not something that, there's many things that tempt me to sin, but, like, not having enough money has just never really been one of them. So I want to couch, like, my fervor and say this is not the kind of... Um, I don't think that I'm the kind of sign of what's a necessarily normal experience when you're looking at the stock market. I think it is hard. I think it is slow. But I think what I can be, if anything, is just a sign of how this looked to a people for whom this was not the norm. And this is something that I don't think we really understand in our own tradition, like how angry and upset the poor got 
about these kinds of techniques and practices? Like how, for instance, you know, Shakespeare could write something like The Merchant of Venice, where mm. usury isn't just like condemned in some theoretical fashion, but it's like he's describing a society in which usury was just obviously, you know, wrong yeah. and like it, which people's consciences were just alert to and, and rejecting in different ways. Yeah. Uh, and again, this is not to say there's some kind of like purity in Christendom where no one was greedy and no one was sinful. But it is to say that there is a state of conscience that comes from receiving the tradition, which I've received from your, from you reading it. <laughs> um, there is a kind of clarity of consciousness where this stuff can just become more transparent and where things just appear to be lies uh, um, as opposed to like having to figure things out systematically. Um, and that's one of the calls, I think, to building Christian communities as opposed to monetary communities. That is communities based not on mutual gain, but communities based on Christ, which is the education of children into the ridiculousness of the stock market. Mm. Not into the ridiculousness of the stock market, but to respond to the obvious wickedness of um, the sin of speculation, especially as a large institution, right? So that the institution no longer hides the sin of speculation, mm -hmm. but actually for people whose consciences are well formed, it it shows it in all of its monstrosity. It yeah. says like, oh yeah, can you imagine if we all did this? Look at look at this horrible system that would result. Um, I think that is really possible, but I think it requires catechesis, teaching, preaching. It requires an actual um, an actual awakening of the conscience uh, to this degree. So I think this is to caveat. Yes, it takes a long time. Yes, it's hard mm. work when you're in it, but we should have lots of hope because when you're not in it, I think it's actually pretty obvious what's to be done. Yeah, I mean, you just look at back at all these medieval sermons. Like people are, con I mean, like the homilists are constantly calling out against. Um, they didn't use a the term there, but speculators and, and usurers. Mm -hmm. You know, they're saying these things are evil. These things are bad. And you read it so much, you're like, gosh, these guys were everywhere. But it's actually the very point that they weren't everywhere that they were able to identify it, point it out, and condemn it so easily. When was the last time you heard a, ser a sermon? against about speculation oh, i mean this very a, podcast is evidence like we have to talk for it's been like two hours now <laughs> to like okay let's go. unravel <laughs> this situation to show how how at the root there's something wrong here you know what i mean so but i think it should just be a sign of hope like we don't have to live this way we don't have to retire this way we yeah. don't have to get our security through this means it's not even that good of a means honestly if you're going to look at it compared to real estate or land or something like that no like, and as will pointed out that it just makes things worse it exacerbates our problems increases yeah. inflation yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i just learned that but i'm going to say it confidently from now on <laughs> do it <laughs> bro you speculate why are you trying to increase inflation <laughs> cuz everyone else is doing it well will so it must be good Will has a, a big journey ahead of him because he, he quit being a banker, became an intern for uh, New Polity for a while, and now you're going off to do a master's education mm -hmm. at our GP2. dear friend. Yeah, John. J J our dear friend, John Our dear Polsek. friend <laughs> of the JP2 Institute. <laughs> so we're giving him up to Schindler and Hanby and all the rest, and I'm sure they'll treat you well. I hope so. <laughs> We'll not as good, not as, good as you guys yeah. <laughs> impossible <laughs> alright everyone thanks so much for listening to Good Money and we will see you next time great see ya